Well, this morning we are going to continue looking at the offices of leadership that Jesus desired to have over his church, elders and deacons. Today our text comes from Acts chapter 6. We're going to look at the first seven verses and then briefly at the end of our time we'll flip to 1 Timothy chapter 3 verses 8 through 13 and we will consider the qualities or virtues that should be consistent with the life of God's deacons, God's servant leaders over his flock. Let's read the text from both of these passages this morning, and then we'll pray and ask God's blessing on our time. This is from Acts chapter 6, the first seven verses. Remember, these are the words of God himself. Now, in these days, when the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint by the Hellenists arose against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. And the twelve summoned the full number of disciples and said, It is not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the Holy Spirit and of wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. What they said pleased the whole gathering, and they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit, and Philip, and Prochorus, and Nicanor, and Timon, and Parmenas, and Nicolaus, a proselyte of Antioch. These they set before the apostles, and they prayed, and they laid their hands on them. And the word of God continued to increase, and the number of disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. Amen. 1 Timothy chapter 3, 8 through 13. Deacons likewise must be dignified, not double-tongued, not addicted to much wine, not greedy for dishonest gain. They must hold the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience. Let them also be tested first. Then let them serve as deacons if they prove themselves blameless. Their wives, likewise, must be dignified, not slanderers, but sober-minded, faithful in all things. Let deacons each be the husband of one wife, managing their children and their own households well. For those who serve well as deacons gain a good standing for themselves and also great confidence in the faith that is in Christ Jesus. Father, your word is more powerful than any weapon that could be designed by men. It is strong. It is enduring. Throughout the end of the ages, your word continues. It always will. Not one jot or tittle of it will fall to the ground. And everything you have designed and planned and predestined will come to place. It will happen. 
We thank you for the surety of this. We thank you that in seasons like this, where the world turns its eyes towards temporal things, where the people around the world who are lost and wandering in darkness, many shake their fists, Father, at your Christ and seek to cast off his coming, his anointing, and his crucifixion and resurrection. They hate it. Oh Lord, empower us today to rejoice in it. This is what we come to the word for. We need instruction for how your church should be governed by elders, how the service should be managed and led by deacons. But Lord, more than anything, we need Christ. We need Jesus. A fresh view of him, an earnestness and a conviction to be with him in the secret place as you've commanded. And we need to be so moved by him that Jesus would be with us everywhere in the public sphere. Oh Lord, I am not able to communicate this to your people and they are not able to hear this apart from your Holy Spirit. So please move freely in this room right now through the power of your Spirit. Help us, aid us. Cause us to love you more. Amen. Amen. Well, many of you know that homeownership comes with tremendous responsibility and a seemingly unending list of honeydews. The most important of those that our family has experienced and dealt with thus far at our new home is our now infamous failing water pump uh, that supplies pressure to our house. Water pressure. Since we live on a mountain, we have to have an added booster pump to increase the water pressure to all of the faucets and showers in our home. Shortly after Tammy and I took occupancy of the 351 Oliver Springs Highway house, the water pressure in the house began to fluctuate between a steady usable stream and a mere trickle of water. This made dishwashing and kid washing and dad and mom washing a challenge to say the least. It also exposed some weaker areas in our home's water system. This went on the, we've got to deal with that now list. The plumber that I mentioned to you all several weeks ago came out to help us and he put in a new water pressure booster pump. And while he and I were working on it, we discovered some things that were wrong uh, with the old one in the process of the repair. First, the old booster pump had power and the motor was trying to turn on. But there was some internal failure in the unit. Second, the previous owners had used galvanized steel piping to connect the old pump um, and those uh, pipes would have to come out um, for the new unit. I'm theorizing that maybe they used those thicker pipes to help with insulation and keep it from freezing. Lastly, we learned that the internal failure was caused by connecting the old pump with the galvanized pipe, which had sat unused for some years and had rusted on the inside, filling the old pump with rust and locking up the motor. Now, you're probably wondering what the deacon ministry has to do with a failing booster pump. 
God has blessed Christ the King far more than we could have imagined and in more ways than we could have dreamed. With all those blessings come lots of responsibilities, each of which God will hold us accountable as a church uh, for how we steward them. Jeremy and I are very glad to serve the church in every way that we are right now, but we are beginning to feel like my old booster pump. The house needs its water supply. It needs what nourishes it. And the power's on in our hearts to supply it, but there's too much in our tank. And we are concerned that the needs of the church will not be met. I imagine the apostles felt a similar way in today's passage. We're going to look at Acts chapter 6 and the beginning of what I think was the deacon ministry. We, the elders, can't do it all. We need some help. So today, let's continue our study of what he must be if he is to be our deacon. I do have an outline for you today for those of you who love outlines. Three points. We're going to look at first a logistical issue in the church and a solution. A logistical issue and a solution. We're going to look at then two distinct offices and roles. Two distinct offices and roles that God has given for the governance and help of His church. And lastly and briefly, we will look at qualifications for a deacon. Now before I get started with Acts chapter 6, and we're going to go verse by verse, I'll make some comments about this just briefly. Not everyone agrees that Acts chapter 6 is the beginnings of the deacon ministry. I am convicted that it is. However, there are other people who have uh, good perspectives on this and would disagree with me. Um, one of the things that they point to is that the word deacon or the title deacon, uh, that's diakonoi, isn't used at all in the chapter. Uh, they would also say that those that are chosen are all men. Uh, many view the deacon ministry as open to both men and women. And lastly, Stephen was powerful in his understanding and preaching of the word. He seems to have been more qualified as an elder than for a deacon. To these objections, I would briefly respond as follows. The word deacon isn't used in Acts chapter 6, verses 1 through 7, but the verb diakonain, which is the verb form of the noun deacon, is used. Um, this is not conclusive one way or the other. However, the idea that the apostles shouldn't manage the service of the saints is what this whole passage is about. By the way, that same verb, uh, diakonon, it's another uh, suffix, but it's the same verb, is used by our Lord in Luke twenty-two twenty-seven. Jesus said, but I am among you as one who deacons, as one who serves. The objection that those that are chosen are all men is not conclusive either. And Stephen being a man who typifies an elder more than a deacon is what I would call an unsustainable opinion. Again, it's not conclusive either way. In addition, Stephen was certainly a man who held the mystery of the faith, another Pauline term for the gospel, with a clear conscience. That's from 1 Timothy 3.9. So, beloved, in issues of church governance, which we would typically place under a second tier... Okay, these are not primary issues. These are not essential gospel issues. Christ, His deity, His humanity, atonement, 
justification, the Trinity, those foundational issues of the Christian faith, those would be first-tier issues. Typically, when we think of ecclesiology, we think of it being a second-tier issue. It's important, but it's not primary. And in issues like this, I would encourage us as a church to consider what Augustine once said. He said, in essentials, unity. In non-essentials, liberty. And in all things, charity. Remember, we say this over and over and over again at this church. The whole world will know that we're the disciples of Jesus by our love for one another. By our love for one another. Not figuring out all the second and third tier stuff. They don't find out whether or not we're Jesus' disciples because we've got all of our ducks in a row in the second and third tier issues. That adiaphora, those disputable matters, they don't look at us and say, oh wow, those are the people of Jesus, they've got the millennium figured out. Nobody does that. Nobody does that. But they do know who we are, that we are Jesus' people by our love for one another. So, in essentials, unity. Jeremy and I said when we started this church, our vision is that we're going to be radically committed to the core truths of Scripture while, Augustine says, in non-essentials liberty, we said that in those issues of secondary and tertiary importance, we're going to be liberally minded. That means we're going to allow for freedom for differing views. But as Augustine says, in all things charity, in all things love. Well, let's look at Acts chapter 6. We'll begin in verse 1. The Word of God says, Now in these days, I would ask which days? Which days are we talking about here? We've not been in Acts. We've been in 1 Peter for some time now. So just to jog everyone's memory, these are the days after Jesus ascended to heaven, promising the coming of the Holy Spirit. These are the days after the eleven chose Matthias by lot to join their number. These are the days in which Pentecost took place and 3,000 were initially added to the church at the preaching of Peter. These are the days that continued fellowship of a supernatural kind. I praise God for in what measure we have experienced that kind of supernatural fellowship as well at this point. These are the days when the lame beggar was healed and Peter preached to the crowds and the religious leaders, and the number of the men who were saved came to about 5,000. That did not include the number of women and children as well. These are the days when Ananias and Sapphira lied to the Holy Spirit, and they were struck down by the benevolent God of the New Testament, who isn't mean like he was in the Old Testament. It was a little tongue-in-cheek if anybody was paying attention. I wish I could say I make up objections like that, but people actually do argue that way about God. He was hateful in the Old Testament. He was really nice in the New Testament, except that he killed Ananias and Sapphira for lying to the Spirit. He did. Amen. The days. These are the days when many signs and wonders were being done among the apostles, and they were falsely accused of stirring up the people. They were beaten, and they rejoiced because they had been counted worthy of dishonor. For the name of their Lord. I wonder if you've considered this Christmas. I wonder if you've considered the greatest gift that you could receive from God being persecution from the world. Persecution that would lead you to rejoice. You stand so firmly for your faith. Perhaps you even experience physical violence. The apostles consider this a moment 
to rejoice in Jesus. I wonder if we've considered that, church. Well, now in these days, when the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint. This is an issue of division. And in fact, it's the first divisive issue that the church deals with. In its history, since Jesus ascended into heaven, the first division we see in the church is here in Acts chapter 6. If Ananias and Sapphira is the first recorded sin in the church, this records the first division in the church right here in Acts chapter 6. We see that the Hellenists, these are people of Jewish ancestry, but they were born outside Jewish kingdom proper. They were born in the dispersion. They spoke the Greek tongue as their natural language. They might have known Hebrew, but they likely grew up in a Greek context. Though they had that Jewish ancestry, they were often considered among Jews kind of half-breeds. Well, you're not really a true Jew. I mean, Hebrew's not your first language. You're a Greek speaker. A complaint by the Hellenists arose against the Hebrews. Those would be the native-born Hebrew-speaking Jews. That their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. Now, this is a distribution of food. This is a distribution, perhaps, of wealth, of needs, of benevolence funds. And a question that I have is, how sinister was this? Was it really as sinister as a cultural partisanship? Oh, those half-breeds. Let's make sure we get the funds to the true Jews first, and then we'll make sure that we get the funds to those Hellenist women. That then we'll make, if we got any funds left over, then we'll pass it out to those Hellenist women. Now, there are people today who are making that argument. They're making that argument because they want to highlight the differences between people from different cultural backgrounds. Church, I would caution you against this. The Word of God does not tell us how sinister this was. It just says that widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. We do not know the heart posture of the Hebrews or the Hellenists. We don't know that. The scripture is not perfectly clear. We can allude to some things, but the scripture doesn't give us anything conclusive. What we do know is that there was a supply chain issue. Okay? We know about supply chain issues in our day. There was a supply chain issue. The bottom line is that the donated funds for benevolence needs that were needed for the church were not making their way all the way around the church. And I would say as just a brief point of application that as Christ the King considers our benevolence funds and what to do with them, Jeremy and I are convinced that we need to be a church that puts our money where our mouth is. We want to be a church that puts our money where our mouth is. We're a church that would encourage you as far as it is possible on us. We want to encourage you to homeschool your children. Government schools, whether you like it or not, whether I like it or not, the bottom line, the teaching in the government school system today is to educate your child to believe that there is no God. That is their job. That is what they are intending to do. Now, maybe Miss So-and-so at the local school in Clinton doesn't want that. She's a Christian. She wants to educate well. But the educational doctrine, the books that the kids hold, what they take home with them and do homework with, teaches them to be God-haters. 
It teaches them to hate God. Jeremy and I want to encourage every parent to homeschool their children. We know that that's difficult. It requires time from the mother to stay home and watch. It also requires resources and funds. We're theorizing and praying right now, and Lord willing, our deacons are going to help us with this, how to set aside funds so if we have covenant members who are those that would qualify for this kind of benevolence, we can give extra funds to them to help them and enable them to homeschool their kids. We need to be a church that puts our money where our mouth is. That's what we want to do. So be thinking about that as we think about our benevolence needs and how we're going to impact this larger community. If we have a woman on a sidewalk come up to us and say, I will murder my child, but I might reconsider if you'd be willing to pay every dime. Our church is going to pay every dime to save that child. We're going to do whatever it takes. I don't care how unique the situation. I don't care how much it costs. We are going to do whatever it takes to save that child. We're going to put our money where our mouth is. Well, these Hellenist women, these widows, were being neglected in the daily distribution. And the 12 saw the issue. They saw that this was a point where division could happen. Whether it started as a culturally divisive issue or not, we don't know. But it could turn into that. And the 12 said, we've got to do something about this. They summoned the full number of disciples. Now consider that for a minute. We're up to 5,000 at this point. 5,000 men. Got a lot of feedback, a lot of input. In the abundance of counselors, there's wisdom. Potentially 5,000 voices from men spoke into this situation. They had to decide, what should we do? They said, it is not right, beloved, that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. Now, this is going to strike offensive to our modern ears. We're going to read something like that. We're going to say, now, wait a sec. The elders ought to serve. The elders ought to be willing to take up chairs. The elders ought to be willing to prepare the food. The elders ought to be willing to take turns on security. The elders ought to be willing to set up the sound system and do those things. Yes, I mentioned last week, elders should be willing to do that. And they ought to set that example. But in the West today, we hate the fact that different people have different roles. We hate that different people have different roles. The word or verb diakonane is for those who should serve. An elder should not serve at the cost of the ministry of the word and prayer. That is clear from the text. We see right here in the text that they did not value service so much that they neglected their duty to feed the sheep and be in prayer for the sheep. And I would say, beloved, that prayer for the sheep from the leadership of the church is far more valuable than we realize. It is far more valuable than we realize. Your elders need time, not only studying the word, but we need regular hours in the secret place to be communicating with Jesus about the needs of this church. We need that. And so, the twelve, having called near the multitude of disciples, this is from the Young's literal translation, said, amen, it is not pleasing. I actually really like the Young's literal translation. If you ever get a chance, check it out. It's a great literal word for word from the Greek. It is not pleasing that we, having left the word of God, do minister at tables. Elders are not above service, 
For whoever wants to be the first among you must be the slave of all, but it is not our primary job. I mentioned a pastor and a brother who's been powerful minister in my life over the last year, Michael Foster, last week. Um, if you listen to Michael Foster, he's a little salty, but he speaks to the issues of roles, particularly in the home, in a powerful way that encourages me to get out of my mind and repent of the way the world has bred into me egalitarianism. Everybody's got to do the same thing. Everybody's got to have their fair share of this. Michael Foster talking about egalitarianism in the home said recently in something the men shared in their channel, I see a lot of complementarian pastors chiding men for not chipping in with the dishes and the laundry. I rarely do either. Consider that, church. He said, I rarely do either. I'm not above it. My wife just usually has it knocked out. Plus, hear this, me fathering my kids and encouraging my wife does 10 times more for the well-being of our household. My household doesn't need a second mother. It needs a father. And the church of Jesus doesn't need elders who serve as deacons. It needs elders and it needs deacons. And that's what our apostle examples here in the text saw. By point of application, ladies, can I exhort you? Let the men be men. Ladies, let your husband lead you. Even when you're angry. Let him devote himself to being a father to your children. Repent of the evil egalitarian spirit that tells you he should do his fair share of X, whatever it is. If I can say this without sounding crass, get off the teat of tit for tat. Get off the teat of tit for tat. Girls, ladies, sisters of Christ, there is no life in trying to make your husband a woman. There is no life in that. I know there's something in your heart that says, if I release all control of this, he might ignore me, he might never help, and I'll be doing everything. Let God take care of that. Let your brother speak into his life when they see him being a coward or a sloth and chide him for it, rightfully so. Get off the teat of the tit for tat. Repent of it. Let it go. As I said, the church doesn't need elders who do it all. The Bible teaches that the different offices of ministry, the apostle, the prophet, the evangelist, the pastor and the teacher are given to equip the saints for the work of ministry. Ephesians 4 goes on to say that this church-wide ministry work should continue until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. Beloved, us considering deacons in our church is an issue of getting more Jesus in our church. It is an issue of all of us getting more of Christ. You see at the end of this, I'll jump right to the end of the passage, the word of God continued to increase, the number of disciples multiplied greatly, and even many of the priests became obedient to the faith. Because of their decisive action in this moment to raise up these men to serve, 
the church received more word, more salvations. Christ was more present in their midst. We need this office. The church also has a role. You see in chapter 6, verse 3, Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the Spirit and of wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty. The church's role is to call out the giftings and nominating men for this work. Our Constitution says that the normal procedure in the New Testament for the selection of deacons and elders is the process of recognition. Jeremy and I are listening to you, church. We're listening to you when you come and you say, hey, so-and-so, I just want you to know they serve really well. When they do X, it ministers to my heart. Now, I would encourage this not just for those people who will hold an office or a title, but in regards to all of the spiritual gifts. Beloved, if somebody prays for you and you see powerful answers to that prayer, we all need to hear about that. We all need to hear about that. If someone exhorts you and you feel like you just got a shot of an energy drink, tell them, when you encourage me, it ministers to me in ways I can't explain. It is supernatural. We need the giftings of all of the church of Jesus. But for this process of us recognizing men for these offices, please don't hesitate, speak up, share with us. These men who are chosen have a role. They're to serve. We use the shorthand deek often um, in-house. Uh, the tables and ensure that everyone gets their food. Now, we're not quite done with Acts chapter 6, but I do want to transition to the second point that I want to make today. And that's that the Lord has given us two distinct offices and roles. You see in Acts chapter 6 verse 4 that the apostles, whose role is largely subsumed, into the role of elder later on. The apostles began the formation of the church and then they appointed elders who carried on a lot of their roles and responsibilities. They were to feed the sheep in a local context. They were to have authority over the flock, oversight over the flock. They were to pray, pray and care for the souls of the flock. The apostles, whose role is largely subsumed into the role of elder, felt a conviction from God that they should be devoted to the preaching of the word and prayer. Verse 4, but we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. Church, I want you to think of this. When we think of elders, think big picture. The elders are responsible for the care of souls. Okay? The elders are responsible for the care of souls. We see that the primary role of the apostles was not considered by them to be the physical needs of the church. This does not mean that once they handed that role over to the deacons, they weren't in charge anymore. It doesn't mean that the apostles or elders got to ignore cases of need. When it came directly to them, they dealt with it or perhaps passed it directly to a deacon or deacons. This does not mean that the elders won't give oversight of benevolence needs or other practical needs in the church. What does it mean? Well... I would say that you can't get your soul food from Walmart. You cannot go buy soul food at Walmart. Someone is responsible to feed your soul. And God has given for His church the office of elder. There's not an app on your phone that is in charge of watching your soul. 
I'm sure there are many apps on your phone that are in charge of watching every movement that you make. Yes, but there's not an app on your phone that watches over your soul. God has given to his church an office for the care of souls, and that is the job of the elder. So I'm going to bottom line this for you. Jeremy and I see our role as an overseer. We are to keep watch over your souls. We are an elder. That means that we provide wisdom and insight from our devotion to the word and to prayer. And as pastors and shepherds, we are to protect and feed God's sheep. Now, let's look at deacons. The big picture when it comes to deacons is the care of bodies. Their job is to care for the bodies of the saints. Again, in Acts 6, 2 and 3, we see that the supply chain issue was solved by men called and appointed to give oversight to the daily distribution. Pay attention to that word. Oversight is important. God has given us an office to manage the service of the body of Christ. Now, different people view the deacon ministry, as I've said, in different ways. Some people just see the deacon office as one who serves. When we need somebody to take up tables, we'll have so-and-so appointed to the role of taking up the tables. They'll be the deacon of tables, okay? That may seem a little simplistic, but people do view the deacon ministry that way. Jeremy and I see the context of the deacon ministry being more authoritative than that, having more leadership than that. Where does that come from? It comes from two things, word and context. Word and context. In the text... In verse 3, therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the Spirit and of wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty. The word appoint is a Greek verb, katastastomen, if I think I can pronounce that right. The verb carries the idea of the administration of an office. It's not just hey, I need you to do this task, but it's, hey, you're in charge of this. You have management over this area. Jesus, in Matthew 24, says, Who then is the faithful and wise servant whom his master has set over his household? Set over, that's that same word for a point, to give them their food in the proper time. You see, this was a managerial role that was given in Jesus' parable in Matthew 24. Also, Paul in Titus chapter 1. This is why I left you in Crete, so that you might put what remained into order and appoint elders, same verb, in every town as I directed you. So we see that the word lends itself to an office of administration or management, as well as the context. In Acts 4.4, 4, after the arrest of the apostles and the preaching of the gospel, the word of God says, Many of those who had heard the word believed, and the number of the men came to about 5,000. That's the number of the men, as I mentioned earlier, not including the women and the children. The way that Jeremy and I see the deacons functioning at Christ the King is leading and directing the service of the physical needs of the saints, ensuring that they are cared for, in our unique church context. I am not sure how you can do that when you've got 5,000 men, not including women and children, and seven guys were chosen to serve, 
and they were to make sure that everybody got what they needed. Okay? We could be talking about 10 to 15,000 people, and seven people had to do all the work? No. I don't think that's what we're seeing here. I think we're seeing seven men put over this work to make sure that those who are helping with the service, all of the saints, were all given the work of the ministry to do, get it done orderly, properly, fairly, evenly. This again is a quote from our church constitution. The deacons, under the authority of the elders, shall have the responsibility of caring for the physical affairs of the church. This includes the physical needs of covenant members and their families, as well as the physical needs of the church. And then it goes on to talk about preparing budgets and financial reports and things like that, which the deacons will do. So let me just give a few examples of what the deacon ministry might look like in our church. If there is a benevolence need in or outside of our church, the deacons are going to discuss amongst themselves how to meet the need and act on it. If the elders are needed, we are available for counsel. If covenant members are needed, the deacons are in charge of finding those covenant members and making sure the work is accomplished. These men are qualified men. They must be examined. They must be tested, as we're going to hear here in just a minute. That means that they don't have to get approval from the elders for every decision. We've got a benevolence need for so-and-so down the road, and it's $250. They don't have to call Jeremy and I. That's why they're called set-apart approved men, because they can make these decisions trusting their wisdom, their relationship with the Lord. If, as another example, we are searching for a building or land, the deacons are going to be an integral part of that process. They're going to help us consider how to protect and maintain the assets of the church, and they're going to give their wisdom in matters of buying and selling in these areas. They're also going to take care of needs regarding the supplies, the meal setups, the teardowns, the storage of church materials, the maintenance issues with our trailers and future vehicles perhaps, things like that. That does not mean that they do all of the work. They're in charge of making sure that those who are set over that work are helping to get that work done in an orderly fashion. These are things that Jeremy and I are currently and gladly doing but with the growing numbers and our finite ability to get more than 24 hours squeezed into a day, we need help. We feel a little bit like Moses when his father-in-law Jethro came to him. Exodus 18. When Moses' father-in-law saw all that he was doing for the people, he said, What is this that you're doing for the people? Why do you sit alone and all the people stand around you from morning till evening? What you're doing is not good. You and the people will certainly wear yourselves out, for the thing is too heavy for you. You're not able to do it alone. Now, obey my voice, and I will give you advice, and God be with you. Look for able men from around the people, men who fear God, who are trustworthy and hate a bribe, and place such men over the people as chiefs of thousands, hundreds, and fifties, and of tens. And let them judge the people at all times. Every great matter they can bring to you, but any small matter they decide themselves. So it will be easier for you, and they will bear the burden with you. And amen. This is done. Old Testament way where we see the ministry of the saints working in somewhat of a hierarchical level and the church is being nourished. It's getting its supply and its need both physically and spiritually. In verse 5, what they said pleased the whole gathering and they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit, 
and Philip, and Prochorus, and Nicanor, and Timon, Parmenius, and Nicholas, a proselyte of Antioch. Seven men, yes, it is true, I'm told, that they each have a Greek name. They each had, perhaps, a Greek upbringing and background. Verse 6, these they set before the apostles, and they prayed, and they laid their hands on them. We will have a point or a moment of installment and we can talk more about that as the time comes. This is the same laying on of hands, by the way, that happens in Acts 13 when Paul and Barnabas were set apart by the Spirit for an evangelistic ministry. And in verse 7, as we see with lots of rejoicing, the word of God continued to increase. The number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem and a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. I would say in short, the booster pump started working again. The church is getting its supply. Well, let's turn over to 1 Timothy chapter 3 just briefly and look at the qualities for God's deacon. What he must be if he is going to be our deacon. Now, as you're turning there, I will offer you a few reminders. These are things that I mentioned from last week. Remember that what is spoken here of the deacons also in many ways very similar to the qualities spoken of and mentioned about elders. Uh, they're not a lover of money. They're not greedy for dishonest gain. They're not a drunkard, not addicted to much wine. You see many similarities. These are virtues, and they speak to this issue that they are beyond reproach, or we'll hear here in just a minute, of the deacons that they are dignified. That's Paul's probably shorthand for the deacons too must be beyond reproach. These are present tense realities. Now, we just have to be fair with the text. The text isn't saying, was he hospitable six years ago? It's not saying that. It's saying, does this man have such a reputation for hospitality that no one could bring a charge against him? That he is beyond being reproach for the kind of hospitality that he shows. Finally, the word likewise connects the qualities for a deacon to those of an elder. Well, as I mentioned, that first word that we see there, deacons likewise must be dignified. This is the term reverend. If you've ever wondered where we get the term reverend so-and-so, it's actually this Greek word. It carries with it this revered person. We're going to see how those who serve well as deacons gain a good standing for themselves, both inside and outside of the church. They get that reverend kind of quality attached to their name and their person. They are not to be double-tongued. The Greek word is di-logos. Di-logos, double words, double speak. They can't be a hypocrite, is the Christian Standard Bible's rendering. They are not to be addicted to much wine. Literally, wine much addicted. Now, many of you pointed out to me last week that when we were talking about elders, I missed the quality or qualification that the elder is not to be a drunkard. Um, thank you for pointing that out. I'll speak a little bit briefly to it right now as we have a very similar quality, not addicted to much wine. This is the negative of which sober-minded is then the positive. Paul is making the contrast to give us a very clear picture of what he's talking about. He's saying this, but not this. And by way of application, let's all consider not just with alcohol, but with all things, as many wanted to look over my shoulder while I was putting mayonnaise on my meat last week, 
to make sure I wasn't going overboard. Thank you, church, for accountability. I appreciate that. But particularly with alcohol, why is it mentioned specifically in the scriptures? It carries with it the power to have power over us. It does seem to gain a power over people so quickly. I would encourage the men in our church and also women not to fall into addiction to alcohol. Paul's command is that the people of God are to be filled with the Spirit, not with spirits. Alcohol is a gift from God, but like all things, it must be enjoyed to the glory of God in moderation in accordance with each person's tolerance. Depending on your body size and how well you tolerate alcohol, in that kind of moderation. I would also say, church, this is probably to each of us the most pointed thing to consider when it comes to alcohol. Even maintaining sobriety while having to have a sip each day is a violation against the command to not be addicted. It's the same way with coffee. Oh, I, I can't not have my cup of coffee in the morning. Got to have it. Got to have it. How then could you be free of the charge that you are not addicted to whatever that is? This drink of coffee, this sip of alcohol. Beware, church. And these things grow in us. Sin is not stagnant. It is like the mold left unattended. It will grow and it will spread. Also, in verse 8, He is not greedy for dishonest gain. If the deacons are going to manage the purse, they cannot be a Judas. Judas, from John chapter 12, said what he said, not because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. And having charge of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put into it. The deacons cannot be men that are open to this kind of charge, or else they are disqualified from serving in the deacon ministry. Verse 9, they must hold the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience. This is a synonymous phrase Paul uses frequently when he's referring to the gospel. Stephen is one who exemplifies this. In the midst of much opposition in Acts chapter 7, where he could have backed down from what he was saying, but refuting the people in his day boldly, he held the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience. I love this story. I love Stephen's example because he shows us somebody who in the face of opposition where the religious leaders were even saying to him, you are an uneducated man. You don't even know what you're talking about. And then he says, well, let me quote to you maybe the entire Old Testament story. And he walks them from Genesis all the way through Moses. And then at Moses where they want everything to end, he takes Moses and points it right to Christ, pierces their hearts, and they stone him for it. So the deacons in our church must also be men who know their Bibles and hold the faith that is revealed in the Word of God. Verse 10, they must be tested first. This is a season of examination. People who come into our church, they become covenant members, and they ask, well, so how do I become a deacon? I asked you last week to come talk to us about this. Let us know. Do you want to serve? Do you, do you have hopes or aspirations of being an elder one day? But there is something that should be guarded in our hearts against wanting to hold a certain kind of office so much 
that we're discontent if God doesn't place us there. I told you all last week a little bit about how young I was and I was raised up into leadership. And yet, though God put me so close to an official title, I never received it. And it was to kill that sin in my heart of wanting to have a title. It was years of testing for me. Perhaps it was the same for Moses, as he wanted so badly to help free God's people. And yet for 40 years, God sent him out in the wilderness to learn how to really shepherd sheep. They must prove themselves blameless. At the end of this testing, he has to have a spotless record. He must be a man beyond reproach. Now in verse 11, and I'll try and get through these last three verses briefly, but I read at the beginning, their wives. The ESV reads wives. Your translation might read their women or just women. Likewise, must be dignified, not slanderers, but sober-minded, faithful in all things. Church, I will confess to you that 1 Timothy 3, verse 11 is one of the most disputed passages in all of your New Testament. It might sound a little trite to say it this way, but in many ways, it's kind of like a choose-your-own-adventure verse, okay? Y'all remember those stories long ago where you got to the end of a chapter and it said, if the character does this, turn to this page. If the character does this, turn to this page. Now, the Bible is not to be treated that way. However, what decision you make with what word you choose at the beginning of the verse will determine how you are able to understand the rest of the verse and the office of the deacon ministry as a whole. In favor of women being deacons. There are these three points that are often put forward. The Greek word gune can mean either woman or wife based on the context. It would seem strange then that Paul would give a qualification for a deacon's wife and not for an elder's wife. Okay? Point number one. Why does Paul give a qualification for a deacon's wife and not for an elder's wife? The term likewise, which we saw back in verse 8, has now been used twice. Used in verse 8, used in verse 11. Likewise deacons, likewise women. So it seems that there's something titular or of a title being described here. In Romans 16.1, Phoebe is called by the feminine form of the noun diaconone. And many see this as her title as a deaconess. Now, again, in all things, charity. Different people are going to disagree on this. To these arguments, I would reply as follows. Since the term likewise is used, Paul is giving qualifications that could go both ways. An elder's wife must be qualified too because he says likewise deacons. And then he gives some different thoughts, but it seems that that could go both ways. An elder's wife must be qualified too, as he is to manage his own household well. We saw that last week in our text. His wife's submissive behavior is surely assumed in an elder managing his own household well. Though likewise has been used in a patterned way, I'll give my thoughts more on that in a minute. It does not stand then that the women discussed here are female deacons. Why would Paul not use the term that he used of Phoebe in Romans 16.1 right here in verse 11? Why does he not say deaconesses? Why does he not use the feminine form of the noun? Why does he not give it that title here? The case of Phoebe 
Thirdly, is a descriptive passage. It's not prescriptive, and therefore we can't say that it's conclusive either way. In addition to these arguments, since Jeremy and I take Acts 6 to the, uh, the formation of the early deacon ministry, and since those who were chosen were men and had a leadership or managing role of the service, we don't see Paul allowing for women deacons here. This, number two, we're going to give another thing that he could be talking about here. Could be talking about the wives of deacons. He could be talking about the wives of deacons. That's the way the ESV translates it. They're wives likewise. Now, I actually am not sure that that's what it's talking about either. The argument that Paul would not give qualifications for a deacon's wife and not an elder's wife does have some weight. Though I say it's not conclusive, it, it's an interesting point. Why does he say the wives of deacons in verse 11, and he didn't say anything about elders. That's interesting to me. In addition, the term likewise does not refer to individuals who are qualified. It could be the wives of deacons, but I'm not so sure of that. So, number three, this is our third interpretation of what verse 11 could be saying, and this is where I would land on this. This is where Jeremy would land on this. Women who are to serve under the authority of deacons. Women who are to serve under the authority of deacons. It's kind of a hybrid between the two previous options. The women here are not given a title of deaconess. They must be qualified in certain ways. They must be dignified, not slanders, sober-minded, faithful in everything. There will be cases that arise, as in the case where a widow must be cared for, particularly long-term in-house care where she will have special needs that need a woman's attention. And women are particularly suited for that kind of ministry, especially to the other women. So the deacons at our church will be encouraged to know those women that they can call on, that can go minister to those needs that require the acute attention of another woman. That's how we're seeing verse 11 function. Again, in these secondary issues, liberality, room for disagreement, and in all things, Charity. Verse 12. The husband of one wife, managing their children and their households well. This is again synonymous, almost identical to what he spoke to us of in the previous verses in chapter 3 when he was talking about the elders. I won't go over that material again, but I would like to make a clarification from last week's sermon. As we discussed the topic of a one-woman man, I made mention of my unique view that marriage is a permanent thing. In that brief moment, I explained that I do not see any biblical grounds for divorce, ever. That means that I do not believe in exceptions for divorce. Adultery is not an exception, nor is abandonment, so on and so on. That is still my belief today, that there are no exceptions. Jeremy and I are going to teach and shepherd this way. Just a couple of things, though. That does not mean that we will not allow or have divorced people in our congregation. They can and will be full covenant members. I, I would say, though, church, last week in giving my thoughts, I'm convicted that I jeopardized the unity of our church. A nuanced position like this that I hold should come with clear teaching in order to not confuse or lead astray the sheep. I didn't do this, and so I need to repent publicly to you 
and ask your forgiveness for what I said last week without giving enough clarification. In order to make enough clarification this morning with just the limited time we have left, I would like to say a few things. My belief is that marriage is permanent. However, I did not mean to imply when I say that, nor do I mean to imply, and I cannot substantiate from the scriptures, that a divorced and remarried person is in two ongoing conflicting covenants. I can't teach that. The reason I can't teach that is from at least two passages. Number one, Moses' prohibition against remarriage to a first spouse in Deuteronomy 24. He says that you may not go back and take the first woman as your wife. He doesn't say she's already your wife. The divorce happened. There was a break in the marriage covenant. And at least as Moses was seeing it, she was no longer his wife. Now, secondly, Jesus' use of the past tense in speaking to the woman at the well. He says to her, and I think this is convincing from a New Testament perspective, you have had five husbands. Not you have currently five husbands. These lead me to conclude that in the case of a divorce and a remarriage to a new spouse, God is not going to hold that person accountable to two ongoing covenants. He holds them accountable to that the marriage they're currently in to be faithful to their current spouse until death. Because of this, and the fact that Paul is speaking in 1 Timothy 1 or 1 Timothy 3 of persons who are qualified in present tense virtues, I cannot say definitively that a divorced and remarried person in every case is forever barred from the pastorate or deacon ministry until they have only one living spouse. Hear me, church. I'm not saying that it can't mean that. It could. It definitely means, and we all agree, that he is faithful to the one woman that he is currently married to. I'm also not saying that we should ignore someone's past or that divorce is not a big deal. I believe that in almost every case, a divorce would rule a man out from being a deacon or a pastor. As I've studied this week, however, I'm not sure that I could say that it always does. I can't make that argument at this point. Beloved, I know this is hard in our culture where it is so prevalent. But hear me. The Word of God says that divorce is sin. The adultery that it causes is sin. And, like all sins, Jesus takes it to the cross. And you can have forgiveness. 2 Corinthians 5 says, If any man be in Christ, not he's going to be a new creation. He is a new creation. Peter was told in Acts chapter 10, What God has called clean, do not call unclean. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 6.11, After his long list of vices, Such were some of you. Past tense. But you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. I am concerned that in my teaching last week, in my lack of explanation, there was misunderstanding, could have convincing people to think that there was no justification for them, that they were in ongoing sin. The Scripture doesn't teach this. Church, I would ask you to hear me on this. We are not going soft on sin. We're not preparing you for a leftward shift. 
we do have to be honest about what the text seems to be saying. We have to handle the word of God rightly, and that means putting the whole Bible together as divinely inspired from cover to cover. This is how Jeremy and I are seeing this issue right now. So, finally, from verse 13. Those who serve well as deacons gain a good standing for themselves. We mentioned earlier a reputation that serves them well in the community, in work, in witnessing, in serving the church from a place of complete trust. A reverend. He's a reverend. I don't like titles. You talk to my wife, she does not like titles. Grew up in the Catholic Church, father so-and-so, father so-and-so, right? Jesus' prohibition is so plain in the scripture against this. But the reality is there. You do gain a good standing for yourself if you serve well as a deacon, as well as great confidence in the faith. I imagine as Stephen was being stoned, the Holy Spirit's impartation of confidence to him in that great moment of trial was a revelation of what we're seeing here. Great confidence in the faith that is in Christ Jesus. So in conclusion, church, as we conclude our study of elders and deacons, I would say this. Christ the King, we need Jesus for this church. We need the living water of the Spirit to make its way across the whole of our congregation. The time seems imminent to raise up men who can help us with the physical needs of the church so that we can be rightly focused and devoted to the ministry of the Word and prayer. I would ask you over the next weeks, would you commit until the new year to pray regularly for elders and deacons. It is likely that we will announce to you some candidates for the diaconate the first weeks in January. May God give us what we need for Christ the King to be a shining light in Anderson County. Let's pray. Father, we all desire more of Christ. And this is part of it. All of Christ for all of life. And here it is right in the text. In order to be cared for both spiritually and physically, you gave us as a gift these offices to give us pictures of who Jesus is. He feeds the soul as well as he came to serve. And we want to see pictures of this from the men in our congregation. So would you give us those men who are called, set apart, and whom your spirit is on to anoint, particularly for this work at this time. Open our minds. Open our ears, open our hearts to be ready to receive what you send our way. After this period of testing, we pray that it would be so clear as it was in the days of Acts chapter 6 that these were the men who should be appointed, that the whole congregation would be pleased with this and that the word of God would continue to increase. Jesus, we pray that the number of people added to our midst would continue to increase. And even many of those, a part of this secular God-hating world, even the high priests of Molech today, of baby sacrifice, would bow the knee to Jesus and repent. And when we see it in fulfillment of your word, Lord, you said your word doesn't return void. So we look to you to show us now how that's to take place. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.